0: That's classified.
1: It's
0: what? It's classified. It had been deemed classified.
1: And B, that footage is highly classified. Classified. It's classified. You can't tell right. anybody, but people need to know. Welcome to CIO Classified, where you'll find candid conversations with the world's leading CIOs. In each episode, we have two different CIOs discuss a single topic. This week, we were joined by Mark Settle and Viral Bajuria. Mark is a seven-time CIO and author of Truth from the Valley, a practical primer on IT management for the next decade. He has over 20 years of experience being a CIO, most recently at Okta. He has a wealth of advice to give, and we're lucky to hear some of it today. Burl is the co-founder and CTO of Six an account engagement platform creating the next generation of B2B sales and marketing technology. Pharrell is a software developer by trade and an alumnus of Y Combinator, and his most recent round of funding valued six cents at $2.1 billion. Needless to say, he knows what it takes to undergo digital transformations and scale your idea into the next unicorn. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Asana. Asana is a leading work management platform that empowers teams to orchestrate their work. From daily tasks to big strategic initiatives, all in one place. By enabling the world's teams to work together effortlessly, Asana helps organizations of all sizes and industries achieve their goals faster. Learn more at asana.com. That's A-S-A-N-A dot com. And now here's your host, Ian Faison.
2: Welcome to CIO Classified. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. And today, I am joined, as always, by my pal, partner in crime, Cassidy. How are you?
3: I am great.
2: I'm excited to have two special guests. First for all, how are you?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you for having me here.
2: Yeah, excited to chat and my buddy Mark said, "How are you?" Great to chat as always.
4: I've looked forward to this all Labor Day weekend.
3: Oh boy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Perfect. As are we. So, okay, today we're going to talk CIO stuff as always. Um, You know, Mark is a seven-time CIO and and we're all running uh, engineering technology teams for a super growth startup um, and we're going to get into everything in between. So first off, you know, Veral, starting with you, how did you get into technology?
0: Oh, that's a fun one. I I always, for me, getting into technology was more around, um, I think gaming was it. When I was uh, in school, I guess, I was so much into gaming and like, this is like I'm now aging my late 1990s. Nice. And I used to build my own computers and like for everything that I did from, I was so much into like the sound effects that come amount of it. So I would get my uh, Cambridge Soundworks, sound cards and and all those things that we used to do before. Um, So that's what first got me into it. And then from there, I was so intrigued by internet and all the things that were happening. I tried to build my own uh, travel agency like online travel agency and that's when i started learning stuff Uh, and it was the fun days of building on adobe flash if anybody remembers that technology Uh, uh, it's like i I don't know why they took it away from the internet but it was the best thing with things flying around everywhere Uh, (laughs) uh, but so that's how
2: i got into technology
4: and then mark what about you well i can i can reach a lot farther back than adobe flash Um, (laughs) when i was in high school i was I was one of the most proficient Fortran programmers that you'd find.
3: Oh, boy. Probably at,
4: the, at the junior level in high school. And our, our high school actually purchased a, um, an IBM mainframe computer, really like the smallest one you could buy to kind of you know, run the school district that we were in. And I got to bring it up every morning in the summer. So I was a system admin as well.
2: Well, and what a great chance to have both of you on today because, Mark, you wrote a book about essentially how great. These Silicon Valley startups are at doing technology and building scale and building size and doing digital transformations. And Sixth Sense is one of those startups at the forefront of all of this. So to start off, Mark, you've been studying this stuff for a long time. You've been involved in a lot of these. Like, why, why the heck are, are Silicon Valley startups uh, good at this in the first place?
4: You know, that's a tall order. Um, there's, there's actually some cultural ethos to this. You have so many people that have been to the movie before. Or they, you know, they've got friends or uh, relations in some cases that have, that have gone on from hatching an idea, um, you know, among a couple of folks. So I'm sure, for all can tell us the story about you know how Six Sense got started. It was a, it starts with a good idea, then some hard work and some inspiration, maybe from some early advocates or supporters. And before you know it, you've got something that's in production, and you wake up one morning and you, you know, it's kind of a shock. But you know, oh my God, we've actually got like. 20 customers, and then we got 60 customers, and it has this kind of snowball effect. Um, you know, the more structural drivers of the whole phenomenon are obviously the, the amount of funding that's here, and that's always been the case. I mean, this is really the the VC capital of the United States, although there are many pretenders to that throne. Um, and then, you know, we don't talk about this much anymore, but you really can't discount the intellectual flywheel that Stanford provides to this community. I mean, if you really go down into the mm-hmm. genealogical roots of the whole phenomenon of what's happened here, what makes Silicon Valley Silicon Valley. Stanford plays just an incredibly critical role. So, you know, this kind of unique, unique confluence, but uh, by now people forget about a lot of those structural uh, drivers and, you know, it's kind of ring, rinse and repeat at this stage. So there's lots of people that they are on their third idea.
0: I think I, I, I mean, I just quickly chime in. I think I totally agree with Mark. And, and one of the things that has happened is, um, is the people, the community and the giving back the community has for new founders. Like I, I can say that, uh, that when we were starting a company, I was like first time founder, didn't know a lot of things, but the amount of help that I was able to get from people who have either done it themselves or have been connected to people and then making those introductions, which then help you scale up very quickly and not repeat the mistakes they have done was phenomenal. I, I went through Y Combinator, in 2013 and um that same thing like the community that has developed is just insane i can still take help from that community today and you send a note and and people are ready to jump in and help you uh in anything and everything
3: That is something that feels very unique to the tech industry, because so much of the industry is built on helping each other on open source, on putting out resources for other people. And some of the best innovations we've ever seen have been the result of people being so willing to give back.
4: You know, that's that's an interesting point, because I think if you look back historically, you know, a lot of times if there was some form of intellectual property And, I mean, it still occurs today, right, in the pharmaceutical industry and elsewhere. I mean, you kind of guard it and hide it and uh, keep it away from your competitors at all costs. And here, uh, well, within the tech world, it's almost exactly the opposite. It's almost like you open up the kimono, say exactly the problem you're trying to solve. I will not say exactly how you're doing it, but you provide a lot of, of like, uh, you know, um, insights into the approach that you're taking. And and you almost goad other people into trying to come up with a better idea. I mean, it's really kind of funny. And, and so that's actually an important part of this phenomenon that occurs here. If you've never been exposed to it firsthand, there are a lot of great ideas that fail. So one could argue, I think, pretty successfully. And, Vral, you tell me. We're not idea limited. There's a tremendous pipeline of ideas. And you hit that point, and you ask this question about scaling. You know, it comes down to keeping those initial customers extremely happy like crazy happy so they're your best your best sales long term and being able to put in place some kind of a sales function that can capitalize on those early successes you know and make the whole enterprise uh, work at the end of the day but the track here is littered with a whole bunch of great technology that just never achieved escape velocity because they weren't able to put those piece parts together
0: yeah and, and i think uh talking from a digital transformation i think it's kind of the digital transformation now is more about uh how do you make anything customer-centric, right? Like how do you make... And, and that's why everybody wants to do this digital transformation because all your customers, all your users are available in different digital or social platforms and and it's all online, right? Like we can't separate ourselves from the technology that exists right now. And so many times companies fail because they don't get that part. It's like many times companies fail because it's not like they have a bad product or they have a bad tech. They just did not switch to that Mindset. They didn't switch to that customer-centric mindset that was originally pioneered a lot by the B two C companies in the valley, right? And then now it's like rubbing off on the B two B side too. And so I think that's that's the transformation that you're going to. I mean, I look at Amazon. I if you think about like the company that they built, they built it because they had the best thing. Like, Zappos came in; they had the best thing because they were so customer-centric, and and the experience that they built for their customers was like instant gratification, right? So, and I think that's what's going through in a lot of minds right now, especially where we stand as six Sense and where we see where the B2B industry wants to go now.
4: You know, just to add some nuance to that, I think, um, Ian, you've seen this phenomenon. In some cases, companies can become a little too customer-centric early on. And what I mean by that is they feel a compulsion, which is reinforced by the relationships that they have with the people that have invested in them to start signing up customers very quickly. And you may, how should I put this, you may be able to sign up more customers uh, than your ability to sort of keep them happy or to really address in your product the needs that they have. So they're a you know, sort of startup company. Let's face it, you're kind of betting on the come a little bit. You, I mean, founders have a great dream and vision, but nobody comes out of the gate with a fully finished product that has all the bells and whistles that the customer is looking for. The, the startup has actually just convinced the buyer that they've thought deeper and harder about the problem than the buyer has, and they actually have some kind of a new way of trying to, you know, use that deeper and harder thinking to actually get the damn problem solved. So, so you're kind of betting on the come, and and in many cases, companies feel the compulsion. I mean, it's a legitimate compulsion to keep signing up that n plus one customer, and invariably, you're better off in the early stages to have maybe. I don't know, like a fifth or a third of that that portfolio of customers. But that smaller number of customers just need to be like raving evangelists for what the product can do. They they can do more good for you in this phase of your development than just saying, gee, we got another 20 customers this quarter. Raul, you've experienced that firsthand, I suspect.
0: Oh, yeah. Especially when we scaled up in our early days. Our early days, we had this customer set that was a raving customer set, but as you said, we had this great vision but we were didn't have the full vision. I call We used to call this thing mind the gap. If you guys know like from the London underground, mind the gap and make sure you are doing it the right way. And I think there was a time when we ourselves were like hey maybe we are overshooting ourselves by signing on too many customers that can't do this thing because they are not ready for this transformation. And so we saw it at first and and for us like as the market came to us and as we saw the growth like in the last four and five years I think Um, I think you have to be ready. The market has to be ready for that transformation too. I think everybody says, I want to, nobody says I don't want to be customer centric, right? Nobody wants to say that in 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 a, probably nobody will come on this podcast and say that. But the problem is, are you ready is the question. Are you ready for it? And are you really committed to it? And I think in our case, we found in the early days, people were saying it, but they were not ready for it. They were not ready to make the process changes. But I think as time went on, we found it, And then we had to build some of the tools to make it happen is the gap that we realized was existing at that point. And that's why we see ourselves where we are right
2: now. So I'm curious because, you know, you started from the very beginning. Now the the organization is what, over 500 employees, you know, uh, obviously a a ton of growth there. And then your role as the lead technologist, which is not just making, you know, product technology, but now overseeing like business technology as the company grows. One of the things that I think, you know, Mark and I have talked about a bunch offline uh, <laughs> and and on podcasts in the past is this idea that it's like part of the reason what you have an advantage for is because you're consuming this stuff firsthand that you're able to kind of just like pick and choose the technologies that you yourself would want to work with, and that's a huge advantage as you're building. Whereas, let's say if you came in as the as the CIO or CTO of a company that makes, uh, you know, roof shingles or something like that. You're not sitting there working on technology all day every day you're working on you know figuring out a bunch of these other problems is that is that fair to say that that's an advantage as you're scaling that you understand you have a fundamental understanding of building technology as well
0: yeah i think so i mean there is there is some inherent advantage to that or there has to be some things that we, we normally whenever we are looking at other things that we want to buy as technology or bring in new technology into the mix many times we're not just evaluating that product, but we are evaluating based on other things that we have in Pipeline because we know what we are doing from that perspective. Well, we know what we are going to build. Uh, so I do think there is some advantage to that for sure. Um, but uh, I don't know if it is that crazy because I think at the end of the day, you have to evaluate technology for your business needs versus just like what you're building. Because sometimes when you get too married to what you're building also, I think it's it tends to, be the downfall of your uh, company and the innovation you want to do, right? So, you know, it's kind of a blessing in disguise, but can also be, you have to be very careful about it.
2: So Mark, coming at it from the other angle, where, you know, the CIOs of the big company who are, you know, trying to figure out, you know, digital transformation, things like that, this obviously loaded term, which we can get into in a second here, do you think there's a lot of those folks who're like, I wish my company was way smaller. I wish I had different types of challenges. I wish that we could, you know, evaluate, you know, technologies and do different things in a smaller, leaner, more agile sense. But, you know, this company is just way too big.
4: Yeah, I think that's a softball question because the obvious answer is yes. You know, I mean, it's just um, the change management in large organizations can be overwhelming, and probably for most Fortune 1000 CIOs. The problem is not so much discovering and evaluating and prioritizing technology opportunities that can probably be done, but the problem is really, uh, you know, getting business partners to help really identify the business benefits that would be obtained through implementing it. Um, and then the other phenomenon that I've, I've done quite a bit of talking and thinking about recently is, you know, whether we like it or not, a lot of big companies kind of dabble in different forms of technology. And so they'll set up a blockchain group and an AIML modeling group and a data science team and a business process automation team and some kind of, you know, sexy InfoSec group that's looking at privacy data and making sure that they're GDPR compliant, et cetera. And in, in many, many cases, these prototyping and um, proof of concept exercises they bear a lot of initial fruit. Like it's, it's pretty obvious that we've purchased some business process automation tools that are producing some clear benefits in the finance function in the, in a big organization. It's it's this kind of the scaling problem that we started talking about in this conversation. How do you double down on something that's really working and, you know, go for some kind of an enterprise wide implementation, so I'm gonna just pick on automation. So let's say you have some early results in your back office that shows that you can, you know, do things far more efficiently, reduce rework, reduce errors, provide better compliance with regulatory um, constraints that you're operating under, et cetera, et cetera, by automating many back office or mid office type processes. That's great. But guess what? There's a ton of other processes. There's you know, go to market things, and there's um, you know, front office activities that go on all the time. There's partnerships that you have, and Um, maybe managed service providers that you work with, et cetera. And you have all these processes, you know, that unite that make the company work across all those kind of different constituencies. And yet to really do something bold and say, okay, we need a chief automation officer in the company. We need to give him or her a couple hundred people. We need to like, you know, it's like the Oklahoma land rush, you know, we're at the starting line of this thing. Let's shoot the gun off and just look for every possible way we can, improve efficiency across the company, you know, whether you, and so my bottom line here is, you know, if the technology is working, do you really need to go pick the tires on something new that's just come along because it is new and it's kind of shiny and it sounds like your competitors are kicking those tires and so you have to keep up with uh, the competitors or can you pick something that's showing good results, triple down on the thing and, and really invest some resources to get more of an enterprise scale strategic benefit out of the use of that technology. And very few companies have mastered that kind of a skill.
3: Have you seen examples of companies where they do double down, triple down on some new technology, and then it ends up not working because they didn't strategize well around it?
4: I thought you were going to stop before the not working part of it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I say that because I think in the automation case, yeah, I mean, there are some clear financial service companies that have found ways to, you know, process insurance claims or um, um, process invoices, uh, do certain kinds of legal activities, and whatever you know, in a far more automated way. So yes, I think one of the problems that um, well, maybe I don't know if this is unique to the automation part, but one of the, one of the limiting factors in really the implementation of any technology is the need to do some form of process reengineering within a company. So I think even you know for all the kind of technology that you're company brings to your customers it isn't just like a plug it in and keep doing business the way you were doing it before no matter how cool that the tool seems to be people have to really you know change human behavior which is the toughest the hardest challenge in the world I mean that's really what stymies a lot of these kind of initiatives and so when you say when they go wrong you know they can go wrong because people don't have the checkbooks to write the checks that are required to mobilize the resources that are needed, that can happen. But all too often, it's just a case of um, you know, a lack of uh, commitment to the change management that's involved and at the risk of uh, to soaking up too much airtime here. Now, a classic example, I think, is master data management initiatives. So if you've ever been in a company, an IT group, where you've tried to tackle master data and sort out all the different definitions of customer and product and SKUs, You know, et cetera, in the company, Um, those are not like one-year affairs. And so, typically, you sell the program as a two to three-year initiative. And you know, it's pretty much like a a hygienic activity in the company. It doesn't necessarily it it produces benefits, but they're not immediately obvious. They don't drive revenue kind of overnight. It's like clean mold out of your basement or something. You know, you got to you know do something like that to keep the company up and running on the long term. So my point is, like, you get into year two of an initiative like that, and everybody looks at each other and says, "Like, are we still spending money on that MDM initiative? And how long have we been spending money? Are those consultants still here? And we're going to budget for a third year of this? Is that really, you know?" True. And and so it's, it's in that case. It's funding, but it's only funding because you know the the commitment to make the changes has not persisted long enough to get to the benefits, and that's this kind of business commitment to change management and I I think all too often, you know, projects um, get started and they don't produce immediate gratification and the kiss of death when this happens is when the initiative starts being referred to as an IT project. It's no longer a business project, IT went out and bought something, IT bought this RPA tool, you know, first this was like a back office revolution that we were fomenting. And now it's taken longer and hasn't really quite produced the results as quickly. And, you know, we're in a, we're in a culture of instant gratification. so now we're going to relabel this. This is the, I'm not going to, I'm not going to use a vendor term here, but that's what happens. It becomes the vendor XYZ program or or project. That's what we're doing right now. It's, it's, that's what it is.
0: I I think uh, Mark touched it and Cassidy to your point. Also in, in many cases it happens because, because the business focuses on near term metrics, which is like, Hey, what's our, Revenue doing quarter to quarter, especially when you're a public company, even for private companies, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the, when you raise venture capital, you're still answerable to like the growth that happens quarter to quarter. Yes, you can talk about a vision statement, but that, that quarter to quarter thing definitely plays a part in it. And uh, and if you're not going to do it, and I think Ian to your question, like, reason sometimes valley companies have the advantage is because they tend to be, they, they're not that Fortune 5000 yet, or they're not that Fortune 500 yet that they get impacted by it, right? One thing I have seen in uh, in in AI and ML solutions is uh, people spend so much time, and like it, it's sometimes many people think that AI and ML is gonna be magic. It's gonna solve all our problems, right? And and then they realize that, oh, we have to prepare this data. It's painful to prepare it. It's painful to make sure that the models work. And then after the models have worked, it's a data scientist that is doing something in a silo. I have to figure out a way to include it in our change process and, and our business process. That can take time. And things that look promising in the beginning take over a year or two years to get to your production. And the business has moved on. Like, I mean, that was the prime example of the the reason data science became so cool was the Netflix challenge, right? In the late 2000s, where they were ready to give a million dollars to people to improve their recommendation algorithms by 10 percentage points. And it took teams three and a half years to do it because they could not improve it by 10 percentage points. And Teams came together, they built it and they did it. Netflix paid them money. And then they said like, great, but we can't use this algorithm because our business has moved on. And that's what ends up happening, right? It's um, it's not the technology many times, it's not working, but the problem is the business has moved on and people don't have the patience sometimes to see it through. And I've seen this. In another example, whereas we see our customers switch CRM systems, again, not naming vendors, but uh, you go from one vendor to another big vendor, it's a two-year-plus project, and then people lose their patience come year one, and then they're back to the original vendor. Uh, Because it's just the, the long process change that is required in certain cases.
2: And now let's take a quick break to hear about our presenting sponsor, Asana.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Asana even if your team isn't in the same place your work can be you just need Asana Asana is where teams securely coordinate work so everyone knows who is doing what by when and why to learn why millions of teams worldwide use Asana visit asana.com that's dot a.com
2: so you know I'm I'm curious then when you when you're talking to your peers and um, you're talking about digital transformation on their side and you're, and you're looking at, you know, specifically like Six Sense, obviously, you know, you're, you're an account engagement platform. You're directly tied to revenue, sales and marketing, right? Like this is something that the business units, the CMO is going to, going to ask for, um, you know, they, they believe in Six Sense. The, the CRO is going to ask for something like that. You know, I, I mean, I guess it is a digital transformation, you know, thing. But when you're talking to your peers and they're like, hey, I got a PO that just slid across my desk uh, for six cents. Could could we hop on a call real quick? I'm curious, like, what are those conversations like for you? Because I think that that's that's part of the, again, that's part of the advantage that I was talking about earlier with like being the head technologist at, at your company when you're actually building a product.
0: It's funny because I had similar conversation yesterday with a founder CEO who said, like, hey, my team wants this thing. Can you hop on a call and understand, is this right for us? Right. And and again, it's a fair question. Right. I go back to our learnings that we had from 2015, 2016, right, where we know that when is it not the right time? Right. Like if you are if all you are doing is you're not ready for change, you're just doing like, hey, it's lead volumes. I want I just want leads. I want just want leads and I'm going to do inbound. At that point, six cents is not going to help them a lot, right? So I think that's the question I ask people is like, are you ready for a change? I think as Mark mentioned early on that it's a it's a process change. It's like, are you going to hire salespeople and then just give them 50 accounts each and say that go pound the payment and find those accounts and get them to buy something? If that's what you want to do as a CEO or a CIO or even like anybody that I talk to, then maybe then it's not the solution for you because... You're not ready for what we are saying is the digital transformation of buying and selling in B2B, but you have to go to a buyer led motion. The buyers will tell you, am I in market right now? And if I'm in market, then I'm willing to talk to you. It's the classic example of like, if I'm searching and I I want to go for a vacation and if I get deals for that vacation, I'm interested in those ads and I'm interested in those offers. But when I'm not doing anything and I get these offers, I'm not interested in it. Why will I respond to it? Like it's and sometimes then it then it becomes creepy to you when you are doing something and somebody figures it out. It's not that creepy for you. You don't like get turned off by them. Right. And that's exactly the thing that we tell these um, people that reach out to us and say, like, hey, is this right for us? We say, like, we can help you only if you're willing to change, only if you're willing to get to the new age and 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 you have to be ready for it. And sometimes it takes time. Like again, we're not going to give you instant something in like one week. Uh, sometimes some of these deals take, like in B2B, take six months to close. Do you have the patience to wait six months to see the performance of the tool? Like those kind of things are very critical. And and I ask them like these questions, and it's like uh, you know the classic. You're saying hey, uh, we are here to help you, but you uh, I I can't I can't show you all the way. Right? You have to be ready to make the organizational change on your side. And that becomes critical in these conversations then.
4: So Ian, you know, there's some very deep irony here that I just have to call attention to. And that is that in many companies, the people in IT are perceived to have their head in the clouds who are constantly sampling at the smorgasbord of new technologies that come along, you know, falling in love every week with some kind of a new shiny shiny ball that they want to go run and play with, et cetera, et cetera. But as Earl's pointed out, the business, you know, falls in love with tools probably more frequently than IT does, and you know there can be tool like an applicant tracking tool in HR. So somebody new comes into the company and says, "What are we using this for?" I used this other tool in my last company. I liked it a lot better. Well, so I don't want the tool here. I want to go get that. Or and I'm I'm not. I mean, I'm talking about some pretty senior, you know, executives who. Just to repeat myself a little bit, there's not an identifiable business outcome to the use of this tool. Now, they can say it's it's got a better user interface. My people like it better. It's going to do the, okay, but are we going to, what's, what's the business metric that we're going to judge the success of this investment on? And, I mean, you learn pretty quick in a big company as the CIO that you're not going to burn up a lot of political capital, you know, having that kind of a debate over some SaaS tool that's maybe fifty thousand a year, 100000 hundred thousand a year, depending on the size of the company. That some small team wants to go off and buy, even when it duplicates something that you already own. Like in the CIO, you just you just sit there and, and you know you're kind of like gnashing your teeth and and you know uh, your fist is like is you know contracting and then exp, you know releasing and contracting and releasing because you're thinking there's a module in NetSuite or Workday or Salesforce that does that. We own that. All you have to do is turn it on. You know, maybe maybe the thing you want to found has three bells instead of the two whistles that Salesforce has. You know, but do we really need another tool to go do that? And, and so I'm just, uh, I guess I'm getting on the defensive here, and but but can't miss the opportunity to call attention to the irony of um, you know when you say this this thing comes across the desk, and should I do it or not do it? A lot of times it's the, the business teams that are throwing it across the desk and it's hard to understand other than they like it a lot, you know, what the business justification is.
0: I, I have those kind of conversations every week. It's therapeutic to share those experiences. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Veral, earlier this year, Sixth Sense for li- raised $125 million in your Series D. Uh, what have you learned about scaling in these last few months that surprised you as you're in this next phase?
0: Continuing on our conversation, the number of tools that people need has increased now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Everybody's like, hey, you have the money. Let's go spend it on these tools that I wanted. <laughs> uh, one thing I would say, I don't know if it is a surprise, but I feel um, the conversation has definitely changed, right? Like, as we've made this big raise and, and this big valuation. The space and the number of companies that are out there that have been trying to start and they've struggled to get the scale and um, break out into this uh, into this industry of B2B marketing and sales. Um, we've started seeing a lot of these companies that we we viewed originally as great partners or like we used to be in awe with those companies too and like, oh, wow, that's so awesome. If only my team could build this thing very quickly, I, w- I would look at it that way. And then I've I've seen all these companies come inbound to us saying like, hey, Do you want to partner now? We are are still early stage. We are still struggling with all these things. And then I look at it as a surprise saying like, oh my God, looking from outside, I saw you guys. I thought you guys were so successful. And I thought like, I was just being jealous about it. I was like, and I used to tell my team like, hey, why can't we do this thing? Why can't we do that thing? And uh, now it's just that uh, I'm getting a lot of insight into these companies uh, and, and a lot of like the details now. And so I think that uh, mark and that valuation and that raise has actually propelled us into things where I think now I can say I mean, maybe no longer the startup. I think we've we are in in some we are in a different league startup plus plus now where we can get other companies coming to us for help now.
3: Kind of like the grass is always greener. You're looking at them, you're like, oh, I want to do that, and now you're just like, wait a minute, they want to do what we're doing. It's very exciting.
0: <laughs> I just hope my team does not listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm so curious because, again, Sixth Sense, you you, you, owe, you just made an acquisition. You know, you, you're, you're, boister, you're bolstering your technology. Again, you raised a bunch of money. And I'm curious, like, did you kind of have to sit down and do that exercise of like, okay, what does this company look like when we, you know, triple size? What are the tools that we're going to need to be looking at? Like, how do we change this technology function to not just manage... Uh, you know, building and the engineering teams in our product, but managing the actual internal tech of our company. Because I know that that's from a lot of the folks, the CTOs that I've talked to that almost like creating this IT function where everything was kind of just like swipe a credit card. There's no governance. There's no like there's there's kind of no rules. Just use your best judgment. And then you're like, oh, wow, I think we have to actually build out like a real IT function here because I don't I don't think we can actually just kind of do this ad hoc anymore. 100%. Hundred
0: percent. I, I I think um we we always had this thing like we are all I we're like probably I try to look at things and I think it's like we're hundred percent cloud, right? Hundred percent cloud as in not only just our, our product and technology in the cloud, all the tools that we use are all in the cloud too, right? So it's like we hardly have anything which is not like as you said, swipe a credit card or or, or a model which is based on user based pricing, right? It's either user based pricing where as we scale and as we are hiring all these people, the, the bills behind the scenes for every license that we have are just all increasing too, right? For every tool and everything that we're using. So now we went back and we said like, we need to document all these random tools that exist, like everybody's using. And I think to Mark's point earlier, like maybe they are the same tools, like why do you need two of these? Like it's, it's like, and then, you know, right? It's so easy to invite people from one tool to another tool or like to the new tool, people start inviting them and so our IT team was originally focused on making it easy to onboard people and easy to like assign tools and assign permissions and that was the that was the IT team focus I think we just changed that focus to what I call is now every vendor has to go through like hey like what is the business need like why are you doing this thing what are the other tools that you looked at and then our team behind the scenes looks at like what are the other tools available can the same business need be achieved by that so the painful process was we had to go and document the last eight years of tools that we have purchased, which were never documented. And so so it had to go through uh, that. And uh, the new tools that come in, I know like uh, some people ping me because there have been people at the company for like now six, seven years plus, right? And who have seen like, hey, it was as easy to ping Viral and get a purchase done. They ping me saying like, hey, it's so hard to get a purchase done now. Like I have to go through this process. I have to go through that process. I'm like... You know, it's for the better. Like you, you, you think it's uh, it's unnecessary process, and we are becoming big. It's not unnecessary process because if you come on to the other side, you will see it's a nightmare for us to manage all the licenses. It's a nightmare for us to manage all the security. And when you are hundred percent cloud, that means all the data is moving across different tools and things, and then you have to keep it secure. I mean, that's the biggest challenge in this whole digital transformation world right now. Is how do you keep it secure because You hear every other week, like big leaks happening or like data getting stolen or like even like companies getting threatened for it, right? And you have to just keep everything, you have to figure out a way to keep everything secure. So it's not just that IT function, actually now our IT function now even spans the security org because the IT people that we have or the people who are dedicated to it are not always security first, right? They know how to operate the tools, they know how to operate everything else, they know how to debug things for users, but then you require a security or who's making sure everything is really functioning as we anticipated, and And it's not like um, we are bad actors in there. So I think it's a combination of all these things that we had to go through in the last year plus. And um, I know a lot of people are not happy, but I think uh, we had to tell them. And um, we did a presentation at our full company, All Hands. I think this is one thing that I learned, and which is sometimes things that are obvious to us And things that are obvious because we are uh, in it all the time we think that okay this is the right way to do it and you don't tell the rest of the company and you don't walk them through the thought process and everything that happened they don't appreciate it enough right they don't get it they think of this as like oh this is just some other process being put on me because the company's scaling probably viral doesn't have anything else to do so he's that's why he's putting this process in place so that he can keep himself busy but um I think when we when we talked to the whole company and we told them why we are doing this thing and we actually showed them the number of tools we had like high level stats and KPIs for it, that's when everybody had that aha moment and it's like okay now we get it why you need to do this thing. So I think that's that's one thing I've learned. I think in this digital transformation stuff that you go through right now, tell everybody why you're doing things. Uh, maybe maybe even sometimes go one level deeper than you would usually do because I think they'll start empathizing with you. <laughs> And and I think that empathy has goes both ways, which is not just on the IT side and the CIO side, but also on the business side too. Maybe the business side needs to present it in a very different way, which is like, why are we doing this thing?
3: It's a that's a very tough balance because it's it becomes less of a tech problem than in a human problem, where developers and and your whole company, where they're used to being a small startup, they're suddenly just like, wait a minute, where where are we going? And it's 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 like. Startup Puberty. Uh, they're, they're not sure what these changes mean and, and wh- what it could lead to.
2: Mark, there's your next book title, Startup Puberty.
3: Perfect. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, okay, well, before we get out of here, just a couple more things uh, for both of you. We want to ask you, you probably have questions for each other. And Cassidy and I will step away for a second, and and you can you can share your questions for each other. But uh, uh, but before we do that, just w- one piece of advice yeah. that you all have something that that you've learned or a secret that you've had in your career that not enough CIOs or or other CTOs or executives know.
0: Oh, if only I knew this was a question, I would have resolved my previous comment of saying go deep into an expense. <laughs>
2: <Yeah.
4: laughs> I'll, I'll weigh in on this one. I and this is kind of a personal job security comment. I think. Especially at an executive level in a company, you can't really rest on your laurels because the criteria that are going to be used to measure your success change over time. And I think it's, um, I mean, let's say you were an engineer and you command in for all in, in the, uh, an opportunity like uh, the, the role that you have there, I don't know, and you rewrite the platform and it's like much more efficient than it was in the past or you, you know, secure it. So it's... it's uh, it passes all the all the checks that your customers want from a security point of view. On the IT side, many times IT leaders are brought in to help constrain IT spending, get costs under control, align the function with the business. That's a common refrain. And at the other end of the spectrum, sometimes they're brought in to spend money and drive innovation and you know launch a bunch of digital um, uh, transformation initiatives. And and at bottom line what well, kind of got you there may not keep you there in the long term. I mean, that's why the CIO role turns over every four years on average in most companies is you came in as a cost cutter, but guess what? We changed CFOs or the CEOs feeling competitive pressures. And he's looking at the IT function and saying, "Wow, we're not like keeping up. Like I'm, I don't think we're you know doing the right thing. We're not. I talked to my peers, they're doing blockchain. They're doing MLAI. They're doing data science stuff. You know, like, like nobody came to me and asked for money for that. Like what's going wrong? So, so I, it's great to get kudos for accomplishments and not just for yourself personally, but for your entire organization. That's all great. But just realize that, you know, the conditions of the business uh, change all the time and the, the perceptions of your fellow executives and the board members change as well. And, and what, what got you there and got you the pat on the back maybe a year or so ago may not still you know be perceived in the same way or have the same value that it did back then.
0: I, and i think i'll add one thing that and i think it's not more just purely on the technology or it side also i think i think one thing that we've learned and and as six sense because we've been we have so many people who have stuck with us for this long and they all keep on saying this has been the best career stop and i think we always reflect back on what and why and i think one thing we realized is if you tell the people and if you're vulnerable with your people and why you're doing something what's happening and you don't know something and you accept your mistakes and accept your faults i think um People don't look down to you as an exec. People actually look up to you as an exec because you are you are ready to accept your mistakes and ready to move on. And um, and 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 I think many times you will see that that rubs off on your team, and they will own up to their mistakes too, and they'll own up to their mistakes to do it the right way next time. Because I think all of us make mistakes. It's not like none of us are perfect, right? And I think it's the way you come across it will be is very important to your entire organization. Then.
2: Okay. Any questions for each other? Uh, any uh, before we get out of here?
4: I got a quick one. So, for all you know, you read a lot and talk a lot about how the sales process has changed in the B two B world over the course of the pandemic. And you're in a catbird seat. You've got multiple customers, right? That um, that's what they do. Some of the things you get told anecdotally that I've you know been part of, field marketing has changed a lot. Even though you see a lot of webinars and things, people are suffering Zoom fatigue and. You know, you just don't get the turnouts that you had in the past, or people lose interest over time. There's another thread of thought that people are spending a lot more time doing due diligence online before they ever want to talk to a sales rep. So all of the initial tap dancing that went on and kind of legacy sales processes of socialization, you know, kind of has, has disappeared. So I'm not <laughs> I'm not looking for a treatise here, but are there a couple things that jump out that think like almost like black and white or night and day from the way the process worked in the B2B world pre-COVID and the way it's working now.
0: I think the pre-COVID, I think this change of the buyers trying to do all the stuff has actually accelerated versus changed. I would say like it was already happening, but I think it just went super fast, right? I think that was one thing that has definitely been a key part. And uh, what we've noticed is um, um, the travel that happens, right? Like in-person meetings and everything has gone down by a significant amount. Even after travel has opened up and everything. I think people have been more open to just like do Zoom meetings and, and only travel in critical stuff, right? That's what is something that we are noticing across the board right now. I would say the um, the other thing is I think events are coming back. It's actually during COVID events died completely. Uh, as you said, like everybody is so fatigued with like Zoom and, and I, I don't think anybody's figured out a great way to do an online event for uh, 500 plus people, right? I don't think there is an easy way to do that. And especially when you can't keep people on the on their screens or attached to an online event for more than three hours in a day, right? You can't do it, right? Because people just can't sit there for three hours, right? So I think I think that so in the that like, that's one of the things I think events are coming back and they will come back for sure. I don't know. I think every event will have a ditch offline and an online component to it, I think. So instead of everything being offline all the time, I think they will do this hybrid model going forward because people will still be reluctant to travel because it's expensive. And I think um, as CFOs and CRs, I think people will start looking at this thing like, hey, were we gaining anything from, by going and sending so many people to these events that cost us so much money and spending so much money there. And should we, should we maybe focus on product first? Because I think if, if the buyers are going to do everything online, then you require very good product, you require very good product marketing and not uh, and not like just sales. Uh, not like uh, people-driven stuff. I know we have one minute, Mark. How do I go about writing a book? Yeah, seriously.
3: Ooh, <laughs> we could have a whole episode on this.
4: A good outline counts for a lot, If you, and at least for me as a writer. So if you have a really detailed outline, the book will write itself. I'll just That's my one bit of advice.
2: raw, I'll, I'll add something to that. Have someone ask you questions for like, 3 hours and every every other question say give me an example of that and give me a lesson of that and at the end of the conversation you'll be exhausted but you'll be like i think there's probably enough stuff in there to write a book about because most executives that i've talked to have never actually spent the time to like organize their thoughts because they don't they haven't like put them out yet and you're just probably not going to spend like 3 hours just like jotting things down from memory if someone's asking you the questions it'll be easier interesting
4: this is my last tip, my last tip for you, bro. So I kept a file for many years. It was called the you can't make this stuff up file. <laughs> and as Ian's pointed out, people remember stories, right? They don't remember philosophies or guidelines or, you know, things like that. And so just just get a little manila folder. And, you know, when you see something and you scratch your head and you think this, how could this have possibly happened? Just jot a little note and that'll, then the book will write itself.
0: That's cool. That's cool. No, that's good advice from both of you. One day, one day I'll write my
2: book. Yeah, we're ready for it. Um, well, gentlemen, thanks so much. Cassidy, thanks so much as always. It's been great chatting with you and uh, and we'll follow along with Sixth Sense. And Mark, we'll, we're looking forward to the next book. But in the meantime, everybody should check out Truth From The Valley.
3: Thanks, it was
1: good meeting you both. Thank you for listening to CIO Classified. This episode was brought to you by Asana. From everyday tasks to big picture goals, Asana securely organizes work so teams know what to do, why it matters, and how to get it done. Plus, with more than 100 integrations, Asana brings together everything your team needs to communicate, collaborate, and coordinate work in one place. Visit asana.com to try for free. That's A-S-A-N-A acom